I'm glad to have this opportunity to open up the Bible with you. Let's pray before we do that and expect God to speak to us from His Word. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful that together we can open the Word of God and, and have you speak to us. Guide us, bless us, give us open hearts, willing ears. And might today we be blessed as we discover something encouraging or insightful or something that would guide us. Bless us, please, to this end, we pray, speak, give us grace to hear. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's open the Bible or open a device to 1 Kings chapter 10, and we'll begin at the beginning of the chapter. 1 Kings chapter 10, that would put us right there in verse 1. Now, when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Where'd she come from? Sheba. Where was that? Don't know. Some people say Yemen. Others say Ethiopia. Some Zimbabwe. But we don't know. What we do know is that it was more than likely a good journey to get from Sheba to where she came to. Where'd she come to? Verse 2. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. And things got good for Solomon because it says in verse 9, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. That's a very important point. Verse 10, Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great quantity, and precious stones. There never again came such abundance of spices as the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Verse 11 says that the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought great quantities of almug wood and precious stones from Ophir. Can you imagine the wealth that was flowing into the treasury? Pick it up with me in verse 14. The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666, interesting, right? 666 talents of gold. Annually, that's a lot of gold. Verse 15, besides that, from the traveling merchants, from the income of traders, from all the kings of Arabia and from the governors of the country, what do you do with all that wealth? He'd have to have his own Fort Knox. What do you do? Well, he did plenty, including what we are about to discover here. It says in verse 16, King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. Verse 17, he also made 300 shields of hammered gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Verse 18, you may be a little conflicted reading or hearing this. It says, moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. I'm certain the ivory came from elephants that died of old age. That's what I want to think. This was a man who was wealthy. Verse 21 says, And all King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Not one was silver, for this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. Solomon was wealthy. Notice this. The silver meant nothing. It was like nothing. There was so much gold. It was gold that mattered. Solomon was fabulously wealthy. And why? God blessed him. Why? 
because he was faithful to God. No, 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 that does not mean that if you're faithful to God, God is going to see 666 talents of gold come to your house every year. No, but God will bless you. And this blessing came to the king, the king over God's people, in a very evident and abundant way. The shields of gold were worth a ton of money. And yet that gold that went into the shields of gold was just a fraction of Solomon's entire wealth. Remind yourself again, why was he so blessed? Solomon clearly was faithful to God. And God had said to Solomon, if you are not faithful, the consequences will be very, very significant. Follow this through. If you're faithful, I'll bless you. He was faithful. The wealth came flooding in. To the extent, he said, what do we do with all this gold? Make some decorations. Make shields. 200 like this. 300 like that. We've got so much gold, we might as well do something with it. God said, if you're not faithful, the blessing will not be extended to you. Okay, let's see what happened over in 1 Kings 14, starting in verse 21. 1 Kings 14, verse 21. And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah. She was an Ammonites. Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins which they committed more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also perverted persons in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations, which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Let's stop and think about this. God said, you get on down there to the promised land. I'll run those people out. You go after them, but I'll chase them out like, like I would do it with hornets. You'll expel them from the land. They're mighty. They're great. They're powerful. Sure they are. But I will drive them out. Why? Because they're wicked and they're sinners and they do abominable things and they're corrupt. And here, not very long after the fact, God's people, the Israelites, are following after the very customs of the people who were so wicked that God chased them out of the promised land. They were doubling over backwards to embrace the wicked customs of the world. I've got to tell you this. You can take this, well, I was about to say you can take this a little too far, but don't take that too far. We live in a sinful world. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. In the world, but don't embrace the sinful culture of the world. Don't let the world mold you so that you're no longer what God wants you to be. It's really important. These guys went to the promised land and became like the people that God ran out of there. You don't want that to happen to you. You just don't. What does the Bible say happened as a consequence of this? We are in 1 Kings chapter 14, and we'll read verse 25. It happened... In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. Interesting. When Israel left the promised land, God gave them favor with the Egyptians, and they took a ton of Egyptian wealth with them. Where do you think the valuables came from that made the sanctuary in the wilderness? 
was Egyptian gold. But now the Egyptians are saying, we want it back. We've come for that. And on this particular day, Shishak, king of Egypt, had a good day at the office. Verse 26. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made. So what did Rehoboam do? Those shields of gold represented the blessing of God that came as a result of Israel's faithfulness. Now they're gone. And what does Rehoboam do? I mean, anybody who came into that beautiful house would say, Oh, Rehoboam, where are the shields? And Rehoboam, of course, didn't want people to notice that the shields were gone. He did not want people to see empty spaces on walls where shields of gold had once hung. So desperate to keep up appearances, desperate to live a lie if it meant people wouldn't think less of him, desperate to pretend and play a part. The Bible says King Rehoboam made bronze shields or brazen brass shields in their place and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. And whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards carried them, then brought them back into the guard room. Brass, it's copper with zinc added. Bronze is similar, copper with other ingredients, typically tin, sometimes arsenic or phosphorus or aluminium or manganese or silicon. Now I may use the the terms interchangeably, brass and bronze, they're similar. The dynasty of David went from gold to brass in just five years. Solomon died, and five years later, the gold was gone, and it had been replaced by brass. You know, there's no substitute for the real thing. A substitute is that. It's a substitute. It's not the genuine article. Some work, I mean, not that I drink them, but you can't hardly tell the difference, I don't think, between 7-Up and Sprite. You could shop at this supermarket or the next supermarket, and they're about the same, really. Ancestry.com and 23andMe, they're the same. Basically, you know what I'm talking about? Some substitutes don't work quite as well. McDonald's will never substitute for a home-cooked meal. That imitation Rolex watch you uh, you got offered for $20 while you were vacationing in a foreign country, nothing like the real thing. You thought, ah, oh, it's only 20 bucks. Maybe it'll go for a while. I'll wear it to the office. And they'll see the Rolex watch. And so you wore it to the office. It was 18 degrees outside, Fahrenheit. You wore short sleeves and a Rolex watch. So somebody would say, oh, that's a nice watch. Is it a Rolex? And you didn't answer yes or no because you didn't want to say yes because it wouldn't be right. You didn't want to say no because then that wouldn't be right either. That Rolex watch worked for about a day and then it stopped. And then the hands fell off and the face fell off and the strap fell off because some imitations are just not like the real thing. You can understand the thought process that leads a person to substitute or replace one thing for another. You drove a Ford, now you drive a Chevrolet, you know, you can dicker all you want, but there's not that much between comparable new cars today. Maybe preference is the biggest thing. You can understand why someone would make that sort of change. While someone is wearing Puma running shoes and now they wear New Balance running shoes, they're understandable. They they were going to go to Burger King instead 
that went to McDonald's, understandable, you see. Very similar, but some substitutions you just cannot understand. They're baffling. Spiritually, we can make baffling substitutions. There are some people who have the word of God. They trade it in for tradition. You'll meet people who give up on God and embrace a godless life as though having God out of your life is going to get you ahead. It won't. It'll get you further back. But I feel happier. I'm freer. I don't know what I am, but I don't have God in my life. Why you make that decision? You just exchanged a shield of gold for a shield of brass. Some people are worshiping the world and making gods out of money and things and pleasure. And there are those who choose to reject the righteousness of Christ and satisfy themselves with self-righteousness, which is not righteousness of at all. And this is a problem. Let us understand something. There is only one way of salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When we deviate from that Bible truth, we make ourselves slaves of the most miserable kind, servants of the most tyrannical master. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Only the name of Jesus. When we reckon there is another means of salvation, when we think for a moment that our own deeds are somehow meritorious, we are in a disastrous form of spiritual bondage. The Apostle Paul described our own righteousness as being of the law, but he said that he rejected that in favor of that which is through the faith of Christ. Listen, the righteousness which is of God by faith. This is the righteousness he told us in Philippians 3 that enables us to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. In fact, let's look at that passage in Philippians and chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Okay, I'm in Ephesians. I've got to go one more book over. Philippians chapter 3. And we shall read starting in where? Where do you think? Let's start in verse 4. Paul says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcise the eighth day, that's the right day. Of the stock of Israel, that's the right nation. Of the tribe of Benjamin, the right tribe, that's the tribe that King Saul came from, more than likely the man after whom he was named. Paul was named because he was Saul before he was Paul. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And he says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. The King James uses the word dung, which is a very strong way of describing something he says is worthless. Verse 9, this is what we looked at a moment ago. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through the faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, let me tell you something. What makes a piano sound good is, A, a good piano player. But if a good piano player played a piano that was out of tune, you just have, well, a tuneless mess. You know what I mean? 
What makes a piano sound really good is when it's been tuned correctly, when the strings are at the right tension. There's a little tension in the gospel. You've got to get the tension right between faith and works, between presumption and faith, not that you should ever get near to presumption. We must avoid the scylla of legalism while at the same time shunning the charybdis of carelessness. You know, it was said over there in Europe that the two rocky outcroppings on either side of a certain strait, the Straits of Messina, were called Scylla and Charybdis. In fact, it was said that sea monsters were there on the one side, Scylla, on the other side, Charybdis. So if you got too far in one direction, Scylla would get you. If you veered too far the other way, Charybdis had you. And it can be like that in faith. You get too legalistic, boom, Scylla. You get over here, Charybdis, carelessness in your faith. Somebody told me recently about a kid who was raised in a very restrictive home. He said, when I have children of my own, I will give them room to work things out for themselves. So he didn't intervene, didn't explain his beliefs, didn't share his faith, took them to church. But the kids grew into adulthood without a clue as to what their church or faith actually stood for. You don't want to be over there. This thing that says how you live doesn't matter. God has no standards. As long as you believe and that's all, then you're going to be okay with God. That's a deception too. You've got people over here who are working and striving and struggling. And and if they eat too many almonds, they feel like it's a sin and they're going to go to hell and they fell out of favor with God. You can go to one extreme or you can go to another. You don't want to go to either extreme except being extremely all in with God. Rehoboam walking around the palace. Come and see my bronze, everybody, looking at these shields. And what he knows is that they represent unfaithfulness. The blessing of God removed. Rehoboam, who are you kidding? There are several things we can learn here. One, it doesn't take long to fall when you turn out of God's pathway. I could point to person after person, and I'm sure you could too. Once rejoicing in the Lord, then they turn from God. Where are they years later? Is life ever going better? No. You turn from God and you go from gold to bronze, just like that. But like Rehoboam, there are people everywhere settling for shields of brass. God wants to give you gold. They're settling for bronze. I'll have bronze. I'll have brass. I don't want gold. Who would do that? Whoever won an Olympic gold medal and said to the third place getter, look, I really want a bronze. I'll give you my gold medal if you give me your bronze medal. But in the church, people do it. Some of them, you know, they feel like they're living the high life. They're free from God. They don't have to worry about that old church stuffiness. You know something? God wants you to have a faithful existence, a good existence. You can be successful in this world and you can have God. If you're successful in this world and you don't have God, then you have a shield of brass. You're going to have the best 401k, the best retirement plan. You can have the biggest bank balance. You can have the biggest home and a fanciest cars. Nothing wrong with those things. If you have wealth, God bless you. That's fine. But if wealth has you, that's another thing altogether. If wealth has you, then you don't have gold. You have your brass. There are people who are academic and academics becomes God for them. Nothing wrong with being educated. Without education, the Reformation would never have happened. Those Individuals were brilliant and well-educated, but some people get too smart for God and they decide, I want to put my own particular twist on the Bible. I want people to follow me, not 
God. And so you're smart and you have degrees and you have wealth. And one day you say, I thought that was worth pursuing, but it wasn't what mattered most. Parents will find out one day they didn't spend enough time with their children. Husbands who didn't invest enough time in their wives and wives in their husbands. Christians who discover they didn't spend enough time with God. What tricks some people is that they think they have gold, but it's merely pyrite, iron pyrite. You know, fool's gold looks like gold. People find it. They're all happy. They think they've struck gold. But as Shakespeare wrote, all that glisters is not gold, and fool's gold isn't gold. Have a look in your life. Is that the real thing, or is it fool's gold? God speaks to his people on earth's last days, telling us that he wants us to have the real thing. Now listen, there are many people today who assume that since they go to church and don't kill and don't commit adultery, then they must be righteous. I went to a church school. I graduated from a church-run university or college. I've done just about everything I need to do. That would make you about as good as a Pharisee if it's just outward observance, a high profession, a great amount of dedication to undoubtedly what is a good cause. If you think that's going to get you to heaven, then you're fooling yourself. I'm a good person, right? I mean, based on how the world judges you, maybe you're a great person. Based on how God looks at you, you aren't good at all. Because as Jesus said, there is none good but one, and that's the Father. There's none that does righteous, no, not one. Paul didn't see it that way. He said that far from his good attributes recommending him to God, he came to the place where he considered his own righteousness, which he said was of the law, to be rubbish or dung. Righteousness involves an awful lot. It isn't just saying the right words, making the right movements, doing the right things outwardly. No question, righteousness is right doing. And I'm not trying to muddy the waters and give you the impression that somehow a righteous person doesn't do right. Of course she does or he does. But when it comes to being righteous, the word of God tells us and Paul tells us explicitly that the righteousness we need is the righteousness of God. Now stop and think about that. What sort of righteousness is the righteousness of God? That's some pretty righteous righteousness. Could we call it complete righteousness? I think we could. Could we call it perfect righteousness? Oh my goodness, you're going to call it imperfect righteousness? We would have to call it perfect righteousness. If not, we'd find ourselves in the place where we're saying that there's something incomplete or imperfect about God's righteousness. So what Paul is telling us is that it's God's plan to give us God's own perfect righteousness. Now mention this too loudly, you'll make a lot of people very nervous because we all know that sort of righteousness is very, very righteous. And we are tempted to say, I could never imagine myself that righteous. But God evidently does imagine you that righteous. Let me just digress here for a moment. I'll be with large gatherings of people. I'll be, you know, from the front, I'll say, how many people here are prepared to say they're converted? How many people are converted? And there's a fellow down here on the front row, amen. And a lady back there who you know, sweetly puts her in. She says, amen. And there's somebody in the back of, <clears throat> and you don't know whether that brother coughed or said amen. He was sort of hedging his bets. The Bible says that Christ will give you his righteousness. It's perfect righteousness. 
And I'm going to ask you if you are saved or if you're converted and you're going to say, "Mm." that's not humility. It's just really bad theology. It's not humility that says, well, I'd hate to say that I'm saved. That's a lack of faith. John wrote and he said, I write these things to you so that you can know that you have eternal life. Here it is written, just today, we're going through prayer requests that people send to us. We pray for them. And we were reading them out. And one said, a lady says, I hope something like, I hope that I have a place in God's kingdom. You hope? Why would you hope? You are to believe. Did you accept Jesus as your savior? Yes. Did he accept you as his child? Yes. Did you change your mind? No. Okay. Did he change his? Absolutely not. Don't be hoping. You'd be believing. God wants you to have confidence. That's what faith is. It's confidence. When Jesus says, I forgive you, takes away your sins, he gives you his righteousness. You ought to say, amen, I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We want the real thing in our churches. The story of the shields of brass tells us of a substitute, a cheap substitute. But God wants for us the gold. He wants for us the real thing. It's important that we have it and that we claim it. God wants you to have the gold, the genuine article. We want our churches to be genuinely alive and on fire for God. We remember the goal is, you know what's really interesting? Let me share this with you. I don't know how I came across this video. It was on, it was on YouTube, a YouTube video. You might have seen this. Someone in a restaurant ordered squid. I have no idea why you would want to eat squid. None at all. I did try octopus once, many years ago. I didn't know any better. It was a lot like chewing on a shoe, the bottom of a shoe, except the bottom of a a shoe would have actually tasted better. Nothing much to it. So why you'd eat squid, I don't know. Especially if it's a whole squid. Maybe if you're going to cut up a little squid into pieces and put it in a quinoa salad with arugula and lemon and couscous. I have no idea if that sounds good or not, or if that's, maybe it's terrible. Maybe in a salad, but a squid. And so in the video, somebody orders squid. And the squid is on what appeared to be a bed of rice. I'm probably not remembering very well. And it's dead. It's just there. And the diner takes what I think is soy sauce and pours or sprinkles it on the squid, dead squid. And suddenly, the squid starts to move. And suddenly, all those legs are moving. There's about 10 of them, you know, or are they tentacles? And the squid legs start moving, and it looks to all the world like the squid is going to disappear right off the plate. The squid, it seems, came to life. You look at the squid, you say, oh my goodness, what in the world? How can a dead squid be alive? The dead squid was not alive. The dead squid was dead. It had something to do with the chemical reaction when the sodium in the soy sauce got involved with the cells of the squid and it just made it react like, like Michael Flatley in Riverdance. Breakdancing. You know, I just read that breakdancing is being considered as a sport for the Olympic Games in 2024. I think that's a sign of the end of the world. It looked like it was trying out for the breakdancing Olympics. 
The squid was dead, but it looked alive. We can be spiritually dead, but manage to look alive. We know what, we know what the right things to say are. We know how to make the right impression. We know how to fake it. But that would be a dead person acting like it's alive. As a matter of fact, sounds a lot like spiritualism. We don't want to fake it. God wants for you to have the real thing, not a shield of brass hanging in your hallway, but a shield of gold, the real thing. Isaiah spoke to this in the 64th chapter of the book that bears his name. Verse 6, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Now, I know you got that. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Shocking, really, isn't it? My goodness, my works, my holiness, if it's mine, if it's self-generated, then according to the Bible, it's worth nothing more than filthy rags. If I think I'm pretty good, I got to think again. It is not that our righteousnesses are not good things. It's, it's not that it's not good to help a kind lady across a road or to give somebody a lift to the, to the grocery store or to buy somebody. You know what I'm talking about. Good things are good things. It's simply that our righteousness cannot merit favor with God, cannot earn us salvation. Our best is not good enough for heaven. Stop and consider the crisis that you and me, that you and I both find ourselves in. Remember Grandma Eve and Grandpa Adam. They were made perfect, but they sinned. Their sin separated themselves from God. So in order to make themselves acceptable to God, just pause a moment. Listen. Here they were in the Garden of Eden, and they were clothed with what? Well, they were clothed with light. It's interesting, isn't it, that all the pictures you see, they're naked? Isn't that weird? We need to change that and start drawing some of those pictures of Adam and Eve clothed with lights. Someone once referred to the Garden of Eden as the land of strategically placed trees and bushes. There they were, lost the light, found themselves naked, and in order to make themselves acceptable before God, they sewed together garments made from fig leaves. They tried to remedy their own lack. Now they had a fallen nature, and there wasn't a thing they could do to change their nature. The problem was within, and they needed help from above. Instead of righteousness, they were now wearing rags. How typical of people today to try to do something to conjure up righteousness of their own, to try to do something to ameliorate one's unrighteous state. Try a little harder, should we? Try and do a little better, should we? Let's uh, pray harder. That'll make us better. Fast more. Go to prayer meeting. That'll, that, that'll change me. But that's just making an apron out of fig leaves. Oh, no, no. Good to pray. Good to fast. Good to go to prayer meeting. Good to go to church. But none of those things save you. We receive our righteousness from Christ. Adam and Eve's fig leaves were not going to help them an iota. They weren't clothed until God made them coats. Then they were clothed. Where'd those clothes or coats come from? They were made out of skins. It's clear that something had to die in order for Adam and Eve to be clothed. The death of the animal or animals that provided the skins for Adam and Eve prefigured the death of Jesus, whose death for us is our only hope of salvation, whose death for us provides us with the robe of righteousness we need in order to see eternal life. Adam and Eve needed something they couldn't originate. When it comes to righteousness, you and I need something we cannot originate. Jeremiah asked, 
Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. People who try to become good through their own efforts invariably end up either quitting on Christ or even worse, they stay in the church and miserable as anything, make other people miserable. Or they invent a theology that somehow excuses spiritual failure. There's a lot of that about. But the solution for our unrighteous state is found in the righteousness of Christ. It's perfect righteousness. I don't need my own goodness. I need God's goodness. I get that in Jesus. The righteousness of Christ, mine, free. We repent. We repent of our sins. What does God do? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God does what we can't do for ourselves. He meets our sincere repentance with forgiveness and cleansing. He took away the fig leaves Adam and Eve wore and gave them something prefiguring that their clothing had come at a great price. Ultimately, the true lamb Jesus would die so they might live and be pure, cleansed from sin. Similar with the story of Joshua, the high priest in Zechariah. Filthy garments taken away. He's given clean garments. Think of the prodigal son. He returned to his father. The father said, kill the fatted calf and bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Did he deserve that robe? No. What made him worthy of wearing the robe? His own great need and his father's love. And you know that that prodigal son represents me and you. It's important for us to recognize that in us dwells no good thing. It's important to know that we are entirely dependent upon Jesus for our righteousness and our salvation. When you think about that, that'll make you appreciate Jesus more than ever. This prods me a little bit, it does. How can I be entirely dependent upon Jesus for my salvation and yet not have much to do with Jesus? It's true God wants to do something for me that I cannot do for myself, it is. And that being so, then shouldn't he be entirely prominent in my life? What about this thing where I'm not spending any time with Jesus? I'm not praying. I'm not reading. And I'm not depending on him at all for anything. We come to Jesus in great need. What we need is Christ. God gives us the gift of Jesus. He takes away our sins. He clothes us in his righteousness and he lives his life in us. And we are growing from that moment on towards the kingdom of heaven. Revelation chapter 3. You notice here what it says. Revelation chapter 3. And we'll pick this up in verse 15. Jesus says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. Interesting. Hot would be all the way on for Jesus. Cold would be all the way off. And Jesus said, I wish you were one or the other. If you're not going to be hot, he says, I wish you were cold against me. Why does he say that? Verse 16. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And I don't want to get too agricultural here, but vomiting is an involuntary act. It's not that the person says, you know what I think I'll do? It just comes and you can't hardly prevent it. And Jesus said, I've got to do this. I've got to. Verse 17, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold tried in the fire 
that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. What's he talking about? He's talking about the gold. Someone once called that faith that works by love. Gold. He's talking about the white clothing, the righteousness of Christ. You get that by faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit, the eye salve that will come. Jesus says in verse 19, be zealous therefore and repent. And in verse 20, you have that beautiful illustration of Jesus standing at the door and knocking, saying, if you hear me, open the door and I'll come into you and I will dine with you and you can dine with me. Not, not, not bronze tried in the fire, gold tried in the fire. Jesus will give you the gold. You want the gold. In a city in Japan, the city of Suwa, Suwa, city officials discovered something of great value in the last place you'd ever expect. For years, the city of Suwa was paying to have its sewage hauled away, but then then they started incinerating it. It was then somebody made an incredible discovery. Barrels and barrels of ash turned up glimmering with gold. You see, Suwa is close to the city of Nagano. And Nagano has an abundance of natural hot springs, which contain a lot of minerals, including gold. And there's a manufacturing plant in town that uses gold in a lot of its processes. Seems obvious that some of that gold would end up going down the drain. These days, Suwa's waste, once incinerated, contains gold at a concentration of 40 times one of the world's leading gold mines. And they take that gold and they sell it for lots of money. Out of, well, out of um, nothing, something of great value. When Adam and Eve sinned, they gave away everything they had that was valuable. God pledges to give it back. We can have that which is so valuable, that which fits us for eternity, free of charge. Out of the nothing of our lives, God brings true gold, the true gold of the character of Jesus. When we have Jesus, when you have Christ as your righteousness, when we have Christ our righteousness, we have everything. Do you want that? Do you want the the gold of Christ's righteousness? I believe you do. Come on, let's pray. Father in heaven, we don't want shields of brass hanging in our halls, but shields of gold, the real thing. Don't let us, Lord, fool ourselves for a moment by relying on ourselves or thinking we can work our way to heaven or thinking that if we just do this, that you accept us. Would you remind us again that you accept us as we are and when you've taken our heart, you reassure us that you accept us and that salvation is ours. And then when you've saved us, Lord, grow us, grow us into everything we can be for your glory. We thank and love you. We pray asking your blessing. We thank you for shields of gold in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining me. Looking forward to seeing you again next time. God bless you.